Hey everybody, it is good to see you here this Sunday morning when we're celebrating the resurrection of our King. Um, I want to just say two quick things before we jump into the sermon today. Um, The first is I want to thank Max and the team over at Creekside. They've been uh, doing the music for us and letting us sort of pilfer their videos all year. Um, But also they just did this special um, two songs for us on Easter today. So I just wanted to say thanks to them. They've been really fantastic. Um, They've been really fantastic all year. The second thing I want to say is just I think uh, we did a little video where Kayla already said it, but I'd like to encourage you to um, pop on down to the Marina Green today if you're watching this Sunday morning. We're going to be there at 1230. yeah, we'd love to see you and, um, you know, see each other again and celebrate uh, this Easter Sunday. Um, so, for the sermon today, um, every year when I'm prepping for Easter, right, um, you know, the, the years I've been teaching, um, it's kind of a, you know, it's a big process. The hardest part is not the, the teaching of the sermon, but it's coming up with the topic. What should we, uh, what should we teach on this, on Resurrection Sunday, right, on Easter Sunday? And um, there's a bunch of different choices, right? We could do one of the stories from the Gospels on the resurrection. Um, And I always always was like, yeah, you know, that seems, you know, pretty easy. I've done that a few years, but how many are there, I wondered. So a couple weeks ago when I was planning this, I went through and I um, counted. And in the ESV, there's 19 different little pericopes or little sections of the text in the four Gospels just covering those resurrection stories, not even including the book of Acts. Um, We could do... Let's see what else is there. First Corinthians 15, the chapter on um, resurrection, which we'll actually read like one or two verses from that today. We could talk about, we could do the story of Lazarus where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And when I was prepping for this year, um, I started thinking about, um, I had this friend who um, died during the COVID stuff. He had cancer. He died last spring, um, probably right after Easter. I think he actually died. Um, his name was Jan. He was this old Swedish guy that I met at the coffee shop. And he was an um, advertising executive in New York, like in the 60s. He was one of the original, like the mad men kind of actually, he was one of these guys. And uh, for a long time, he taught advertising at universities. And he was a really cool guy. And at one point when I was planting the church before I knew most of you guys, um, Jan was kind of asking me, um, you know, if you're if you're going to be Uh, getting people to come to your church, you need an elevator pitch. And he always talked about the elevator pitch. You should be able to sell your product by the time the elevator gets to the top floor. You know, you have a few seconds, what are you going to say? And he would, he would ask me this question a lot. Have you been working on your elevator pitch for your church? And even though he wasn't a believer, he was kind of a great guy who was um, really interested in the idea of us starting this church. And he would introduce me to people in the neighborhood and that sort of stuff. Like, um, you know, while he was alive, he was following closely what we were doing. Um, but anyway, I was thinking about Jan, and I was thinking about the elevator pitch, and it's pretty hard to squeeze the gospel story into like an elevator pitch, but it did get me thinking. Um, if I had one chance to preach, and maybe it's longer than an elevator, but if I had one chance to, to pitch the gospel to somebody, how would I do it? And then that got me thinking about Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 is the story of Pentecost, and um, it's really the first Christian sermon, the very first one, um, besides all the sermons Jesus preached, obviously, but the first Christian sermon. And this is kind of the situation that Peter was in. With a lot of these folks, he probably figured this might be the only time this person ever gets to hear the gospel. And so in Acts chapter 2, Peter, he preaches to this crowd after the Holy Spirit falls um, on the believers and that whole thing with the tongues of fire and all that happens. And he gets to speak to this crowd, this very large crowd of Jewish pilgrims, 
um, probably for the first and the last time. And this sermon is super interesting. We're not going to read the whole thing today. Um, but the, the, the text he chooses is from Joel chapter 2 about the Spirit falling on your sons and daughters and they'll prophesy and all that stuff. And his sermon has a big idea. Now, the way it works when we're teaching these sermons, and t- especially teaching through a passage, is um, we try to come up with the one big idea. How does this sermon fit into the grand gospel story? And how can I sort of condense that down to one big idea? And that's what we spend a lot of our time doing, is trying to get this one big idea across. And so now you know what I do is actually not that hard, right? I'm just trying to give you guys the big idea. And Peter gets into his big idea here in the book of um, in chapter 2, in verses 22 uh, through 24. So let me read you this section. This is sort of, it's not the end of the sermon, but this is sort of the pinnacle. This is his big idea. And then the rest of this sermon, he expands, he goes on to expand on this, on this section. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, that's Peter's that's Peter's big idea. And so after this, he goes into the, he quotes some stuff from the Old Testament that we'll talk about in a minute. And um, he goes on to expand on the idea of resurrection. But do you see that? Peter gets one chance to... Um, to explain the gospel to this crowd and to give sort of this gospel pitch to this crowd. And what does he do? Uh, where does he go? Where does he take it? He, he talks specifically about how Jesus died and was resurrected. You guys, he says, you guys were here. You saw him die. We saw him live again. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at verse uh, 24. We're going to try to do this pretty quickly um, so that I can get you down, get you out of your house and down to the marina green today. Um, so we just read the the ESV, which is like the main translation we use here at the porch. But um, today we're going to look at just verse 24 and I want to read to you from a different translation called the CSB. I actually have a bunch of CSB Bibles here. This one and I don't know, there's a bunch of uh, that one. Uh, it's another translation I really like. Anyway, I'm going to read to you from the CSB, uh, verse 24, and we're going to take this, we're going to talk just about this verse. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That's our verse today. That's sort of the pinnacle of Peter's sermon, is what happened to Jesus after he died. And it's broken up into these three phrases. Three phrases. The first one is that God raised him up. The second one is that in that raising him up, he ended the pains of death. And then the third phrase is because it wasn't possible for him to be held by death. Now, um, our our sermon today, right? This sermon today, the big idea. When talking about the resurrection, um, we can talk about this from a few different angles. And a lot of evangelical sermons, and rightly so, will spend a great deal of time talking about the historical proofs for the resurrection. Um, because a while ago... That's a really important thing to do because about 100, 150 years ago, there was a lot of scholarship and a lot of people talking about how, uh, like the historical Jesus and how we can't really know what happened at the tomb and, you know, trying to say, well, the early disciples didn't really believe that um, Jesus rose from the dead. They believed it was some sort of a spiritual resurrection. There's a lot of angles they go to attack the historical resurrection. Um, N.T. Wright wrote a great book. I think it was called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Um, Tim Keller just wrote a book on the resurrection. Both of those books are fantastic, and they spend a great deal of time sort of attacking that line of thinking. Today, and a lot of times, you know, we'll get into that too. Um, 
Today, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go after the historical proof for the resurrection. And we're definitely going to get into some of that stuff when we get to the end of the book of Luke and we go through all the resurrection stories um, there in the last uh, bit of the book of Luke. So we're just going to kind of take that stuff and put it off to the side for now. What we're going to do today, though, is we're going to take a look at this sentence in Acts 2.24 from Peter's sermon, because here's the deal, and Tim Keller kind of says this in his book, too, is that it's not really enough to believe that the resurrection happened. We have to know a few other things as well. Um, first, we want to understand not just that it happened, we want to understand why it happened. And then second, we want to ask this question, what does the idea of the resurrection mean for me personally and for us as a community? So why did it happen and what does it mean for me? That's kind of our um, going to be our aim today. Um, in Philippians 3.10, Paul says this, talking about it, he says, he's kind of in the middle of a thought here, but he says that I may, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Right, So um, the idea is that the resurrection has actual power in our world, and um, we might spend too much time talking about the historical proofs of the resurrection. We might spend too much time talking about whether or not the resurrection actually happened, and we might miss out on the power of the resurrection, right? You see, the, the, the resurrection, it's not something that just happened. It's something that happened, and it means something even today, right? It's something... Uh, that happened, and it does something for us, it does something to us. And so why did this happen, and what does it mean for me? So that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to do that by looking at the three clauses in this sentence of Acts 2.24. So let's look at the first one. The first one is this. Uh, It says that God raised him up. So it's interesting that in the middle of this sermon, Peter, he says this so matter-of-factly, right? Like the verse right before this, you guys killed Jesus at the hands of lawless men, although it was according to the, you know, he says the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and that's a whole other sermon, right? Um, he, but Peter just says, but God raised him up, right? It's like he says it so matter-of-factly because he was an eyewitness. Now, notice how Peter doesn't say, we think he rose. Peter sat with Jesus, he ate with him, he watched him ascend into heaven. But again, uh, the historicity of the resurrection isn't our aim today. It's just kind of an interesting uh, thought there as, as we're reading this as we're reading this verse. So here's another question though, right? Uh, God raised him up. Which member of the Trinity uh, is the one that raised Jesus? Well, notice the word is not father. He doesn't say the father raised him up. What does he say? He says God, as in God the Trinity. Now we have um, uh, the Bible, uh, as you go through and you read the New Testament, and it talks about the resurrection of Jesus, there are different times where all three members are said to have raised Jesus from the dead. And what this means is that the, the raising Jesus from the dead, the resurrection, was, a, was an act of the Trinity in unity. Um, the death and resurrection of the man Christ Jesus was a part of God's perfect plan from before time, from before he even created people. He knew he was going to become a man and that he was going to die and he was going to rise from the dead. Um, if you want to learn more about that, go read 2 Timothy, I think it's, what is it? 2 Timothy 1.9, right? That, and he talks about that. Before humanity was created, God planned the, the incarnation, the death and the resurrection. But why? Why did God raise him up? Well, there's a lot to say here, but let me give you, and the reason, uh, I'll say this, uh, John Piper wrote a book, I think it was called, um, 50 reasons why Jesus died or something like that, why Jesus came to die, something like that. Um, We could do this too. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? And here's 50 reasons why Jesus had to rise from the dead. I'm not going to give you 50 um, because I want to see what Marina Green today, right? Not tomorrow. Um, But let me give you two of the biggest reasons that theologians, you know, tend to give when talking about the reason for the resurrection. Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Well, the first one was that in raising him from the dead, it was sort of a proof 
of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. All right, Romans 1.4 says this. And uh, it, again, Paul in the middle of a thought, uh, talking about Jesus. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Right, So he was declared to be the Son of God because he was raised from the dead. You see, Jesus walked around, and this is what we're reading in Luke, right? He walked around for three and a half years, healing and teaching about the kingdom of God and casting out demons and raising people from the dead, all the while claiming to be God, right? Not just claiming to be some sort of a Messiah, claiming to be God himself. Now, imagine if the cross happened and Jesus died, and then that was the end of the story, right? What would have happened? Well, this is what, um, there's a guy, his name is Gamaliel, and he was actually a teacher of the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to flip over to Acts 5. Let me read to you um, uh, verses 34, where am I going? 34 through 40. Now, what happened here, let me give you the context here, is um, the the apostles are arrested, they're taken before the Sanhedrin, and they're deciding if they should sort of off them just like they did Jesus, right? And so this guy Gamaliel stands up. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to the uh, orders to put the men, that's the disciples, outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He, he was killed, and all who followed him dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too, he perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if it is the plan, uh, if this plan or undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you will not be over. You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. So here's the thing. Jesus was not the first person to show up and claim to be the Messiah, right? Gamaliel lists two guys right here. Uh, and he says, look, and they, they, they had people follow them. They claimed to be the Messiah, and then they were killed, and everything dispersed. And so what he says, though, is, um, you know, we should leave these disciples, the disciples of Jesus alone, and let it kind of sort itself out, because what if it really is from God? That's what Gamaliel says. Well, here's the thing. It really was from God, because Jesus rose from the dead right? Him rising from the dead was the vindication that he wasn't just like one of these other guys. He was something else. He was something completely different. Um, he wasn't left on the cross, a crucified criminal, right? He wasn't buried. And then that was the end of it. What happened? He was raised a king. We're about to sing that song together. Um, the John Mark McMillan song, Max and Rachel, um, did a really great version of it, uh, that I just edited it all together. I love it. Um, Anyway, uh, we're about to sing the song. It's called Death in His Grave. And that's the, the chorus, right? On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Right? Jesus rose. And in his resurrection, right? He was vindicated. Everything that he said about himself turned out to be true because of the resurrection. So that's the first big idea that God, the first big reason God raised him from the dead. Um, another one, and again, there's 50 of these. We could keep going on this forever. But I'll just give you one more. Is that the resurrection of Jesus is the down payment on our resurrection, so after, um, after Jesus uh, the, the, uh, you know, ascended into heaven and the church started, and a little while later, um, there was this group that came along, and they were called the Gnostics. And we read a lot about the Gnostics when we read First John together as just sort of a core team a couple years ago, whenever that was. 
And um, we talked a lot about them. And one of the things that the Gnostics believed was that the material world, physical, actual, like physical, real things were bad and that they were, they were sinful in just in themselves. And they got a lot of that idea from Plato, um, from the philosopher Plato. Anyway, so there was this teaching going around that the physical was bad and the spiritual was good. But here's the thing. Um, the idea of the resurrection sort of really debunks that. Um, you see, we're eventually going to receive resurrection actual bodies. You, a lot of people think of heaven and they think of, I always say this, right, the fat babies sitting in a cloud uh, in a cream cheese commercial playing the harp or whatever. And they think that's what heaven is like. But heaven isn't that. The resurrection affirms that our bodies and the material stuff that we're made of is good and it's a part of God's plan. You see, there were other people that came back from the dead in the Bible. There was a handful of them, right? Um, you know, the, the lady's son uh, in uh, Second King, First Kings, Second Kings, whatever it was there, uh, in Kings. Um, and then just we've read about a few, right? We've read the widow's son and the town of Nain when Jesus went up and touched the coffin. We've read about Jairus's daughter um, in the book of John, but not in the book of Luke is the story of Lazarus. Um, none of these folks were resurrected. All of these folks were resuscitated. They all came back to life and then eventually they died again. Well, here's the thing with Jesus. That's not what happened. Jesus wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected. He was the first one to receive the eternal, uh, perfect body that comes to all of his followers, right? Um, in Colossians 1.18, it says this, um, and we read Colossians together um, at the 9 a.m. service last year, two years ago, I guess now. Um, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, right? He's the firstborn from the dead. That means firstborn, right? Means there's, there's going to be more, right? Um, I knew a guy who is, um, you know, he's one of those, uh, uh, dudes that thinks he's funny and he's not, and he just tells jokes and he makes people uncomfortable, um, because his jokes are often inappropriate. And one of those inappropriate jokes that this guy used to make was he used to introduce his wife and he would say, Oh, Hey, here's my first wife. Right. And <laughs> it's a stupid joke because the idea is there's going to be more wives. That's kind of his stupid joke that he was saying. That's the implication. Um, and, um, you know, even though this was his, you know, his only, the only time he'd ever been married, I, you get it. It's stupid. Um, <laughs> but the idea is by saying first wife, he's implying that there's going to be more. The same is true here. The firstborn of the dead means that there's going to be more. The deal is you're going to die, right? You might get cancer. Um, you might have a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, you might get hit by a taco truck that runs a red light when you're on your motorcycle. Who knows, right? There's a lot of ways to go. If Looney Tunes has taught us anything, an anvil might fall out of the sky and hit you in the head. But truthfully, someday, seriously, someday you're going to die and you're going to close your eyes and it's going to be the last time that that ever happens. You're going to close your eyes and you're going to enter into death. But because of Jesus's resurrection, because if he is your king, you are going to receive you're going to receive a new body the same way that he did. He's the firstborn of the resurrection, right? Of the firstborn from the dead. And you will be taken into a new and better version of our world. And that perfect life is going to last forever. And so not only um, does Jesus's resurrection prove that he's the Messiah, it's also the down payment on the idea that one day you are going to get an actual, physical, real, resurrected body that's going to be just like the body you have now, except perfect. Right, except the way that it's supposed to be, and untainted from sin. Okay, so that's our first clause, right? That God raised him from the dead. Let's move on to the second part of the sentence now, um, is that his resurrection now has ended the pains of death. Um, 
the the Greek phrase here is really tricky, and there's been a lot of ink spilled for a lot of years over what exactly this means. Every commentator that I read, read dedicated a large amount of time to this Greek phrase where it says the pains of death. The CSB that we're reading here says the pains of death. The ESV that we read earlier said loosing the pangs of death. Um, the phrase in Greek is usually talked about um, to describe the pain that a woman experiences when she's giving birth, right, in childbirth. Now, let me see if I can explain to you what's going on. What are the pains of death? What's happening here? Well, when you feel pain, right, like um, uh, the other day I was using my Leatherman, and uh, it's right here. It actually hurts still pretty bad. Um, this was last night, and I was trying to do something, and I was holding it like this, and I, I, I closed the Leatherman, and the, the mechanism that closes pinched my hand really bad. And I threw the Leatherman on the ground, and I looked at my whole hand. Okay, so when you have pain like that, right? What's happening? Your body is screaming at your brain. It's not supposed to be like this. Something is wrong, right? Your ribs hurt because uh, they're not supposed to be broken because some guy ran a red light and hit you with a Jeep Grand Cherokee doing 35 miles an hour. Right? I remember that pain. Or, um, you know, there's a lot of ways you stub your toe, break your toe, something. It's your body screaming at your brain. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. It's not supposed to be like this. Well, death is not the natural state of the world. Our sin as humanity, right, as Adam and Eve, as our federal head, they, they thrust the world into sin. And our sin has plunged the universe into this state of death and decay. And when someone we love dies or when we're around death, our souls are screaming at us the same way that our body is screaming at our brains. It's not supposed to be like this. Our souls are screaming that too. Something is wrong and it is not supposed to be like this, right? And so that's the pain of death. But with Jesus, right, he, it says he ends the pain of death. With Jesus, the pain was different. It wasn't a final pain. It was more like the pain of childbirth. You see, sure, childbirth hurts. I mean, I'm assuming I've, this may come as a shock to you. I've never done that myself. Um, but afterwards, new life begins, right? There's this pain and then it bursts forth new life. And then if you look at it that way, the metaphor makes sense. For most people, death is like a pain, and then that's the end of it, right? But when uh, with Jesus, the pain of death meant something else. It means new life is coming. He entered into the grave, but but death couldn't hold him, and life burst forth. Um, it's like the 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 um, the TV show, The Office, right? Um, Love The Office. You know, actually, we're watching a couple of those shows now, but pretty much Melissa and I just watch The Office on a loop, right? Um, and then by myself, I watch Seinfeld on a loop. So those are kind of my two favorite shows there. And Parks and Rec's pretty great, too. Okay, but this isn't a what's the greatest sitcom uh, sermon. But anyway, in The Office, there's an episode where Pam is about to have her baby. And um, she doesn't want to have the baby before midnight. She doesn't want to go to the hospital before midnight. And because of insurance and stuff, it gives her an extra day to stay at the hospital and recoup and all that. And so she's in the office and she's having contractions and she's holding her stuff, you know, and she's like really in pain and Jim's having a hard time and she's trying to hold the baby in. And eventually she gives up and has to go to the hospital and she can't do it, right? She can't hold the baby in. Um, the same, that's the same idea with Jesus and death. Death could not hold Jesus. Jesus was coming out and um, he was bringing life with him. And that's the third idea, right? It says um, it wasn't possible for death to hold him. It, it wasn't. Now, let's look at this kind of part by part. What does it mean to hold, uh, for death to have a hold? Well, think of, um, think of the state 
holding a criminal in jail, right? That's kind of the idea. You commit a crime, and I know all about this because I don't know if you guys heard, but I've been watching this TV show called The First 48, and where people, they follow homicide detectives, and it's really fascinating. And at the end, I always Google what happened to these guys and if they're in jail and they convicted, whatever. Um, I actually saw one where all the charges were dropped recently. It's crazy. Almost never happens. Anyway, um, but the state gets these criminals and holds them in jail, holds them in custody. Right now, they're, um, they belong to the state. And so death is a consequence for sin, right? You sin, death grabs you, and it holds you the same way uh, that the government holds a criminal in jail. But why wasn't it possible then for death to hold Jesus, right? Why couldn't death keep a hold on Jesus? A uh, couple of reasons. The first one is this. Um, death had no right to hold the sinless one. You see, Romans, the book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. So sin equals death. They go hand in hand, sin and death. It's like PB&J or um, Coke and goldfish. Have you ever, if you've never had Coca-Cola, and I don't mean like Coke, you know, Coke and goldfish. I mean like Coke and goldfish. Every time I say Coke, I get an email from somebody. So Coke and goldfish. If you've never had Coca-Cola and goldfish, boy, you are missing out. Um, it's a real grown-up snack, too. Someday I'm going to have a big fancy dinner, and I'm going to put out Coke and Goldfish. But everybody's going to love it, right? Anyway, death and sin go together like Coke and Goldfish. And death has a claim, then, on anyone who has sinned. It has that right. But what would happen if there was a sinless person, right? Sin would have no power over that person, no right to keep them. And so the gospel story is this. You can't pay the penalty for your sin yourself, but a sinless redeemer could do it for you, right? The Messiah is that promised redeemer. Jesus is that promised redeemer. But here's the idea with the Messiah. How do we know who's the actual Messiah? How do we know who that person is? Remember, there's a lot of people that came along in the history of Israel and claimed to be the Messiah. And even since then, there's been a lot of people who have claimed to be the Messiah. Wasn't that the whole thing with um, part of his teaching with that guy in Waco, Texas? Um, what was his name? David Koresh. And that whole thing with the FBI burning them all down. And I, I don't know all the details, but I'm pretty sure part of his little cult there was that um, he was claiming to be the Messiah. And so how do you know? How do you know? Is David Koresh the Messiah? Uh, is this other guy or this guy? Who Who is it? Okay. The, the You have to know that they're the sinless one. And how do you know that they're the sinless one? if they died and came back, right? The resurrection is how. Um, anybody can say, I'm the redeemer, and then die. But you'll know who it really is because death will not be able to hold that person. Um, in the, the rest of the sermon, Peter sort of elaborates in Acts chapter 2. Peter elaborates on that idea. And uh, he says in uh, verse 27, for, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter is quoting the Psalms here with this idea that the Holy One will not this Old Testament prophecy that the, the Holy One, the Messiah, the sinless one, won't see the corruption of death. Um, David Guzik, who's a pastor in Santa Barbara, and he's a commentator, he wrote a great commentary called the Enduring Word Commentary. He says this, The resurrection of Jesus is not something added uh, to a more important work on the cross. The cross is the payment for our sins, and the tomb is the empty receipt, showing that the perfect Son of God made a perfect payment for our sins. The payment itself is of little good without the receipt. And so how do we know who's the real Messiah is? We have the receipt, right? We have the resurrection that, that we can show God and say, look, this was actually paid for. And we know it because uh, you, you raised him from the dead. So that's the first reason, right? Death had no right uh, the first reason the grave couldn't hold Jesus is because he was sinless and it had no right to. The second reason is because Jesus is more powerful than death. Death has no power over the ultimate power, right? Over the most powerful one. 
Think about all this stuff that we've read in the book of Luke, right? Jesus has, just in this last section this, that we've been reading, these four stories, Jesus has power over nature when he calmed the sea, his power over the supernatural when he um, cast the, the legion of demons out of that man. Um, he has power over sickness when he healed the woman with the bleeding, and he has power over death when e- death itself when he raised uh, Jairus' daughter. Um, and we saw it again when he raised the widow's son at the town of Nain. Jesus is more powerful than death. Um, in John 10, in John 10, 18, um, Jesus says this, no one, he's talking about his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, look, I mean, it's going to look like they're taking my life from me, but they're not. I'm giving it. And in the same way, I have the power to just take it back up again. I have complete power over death, complete power. And that's what we've seen in the book of Luke so far is that Jesus does. He has complete power over death. And so could death hold him? No way, right? It's not possible. It's not strong enough. Um, the other day I was laying on the couch and uh, our little girl, whose name I'm not allowed to say because she's a foster kid, uh, came over and grabbed me and said, you're in jail, right? Now, was it possible for her to hold me down? No way, right? i jumped off the couch and threw her aside in complete, okay, not really, but in complete and utter victory. Why? Um, It turns out, right, I'm a 37-year-old dude and I'm way stronger than a three-year-old girl. You guys, I could probably beat up like a hundred three-year-old girls. I wouldn't, but I could, right? I'm more powerful than a three-year-old. It's like uh, when Kramer took karate and he was doing, he's bragging about how he's always winning and it turns out it's just because he was fighting kids, right? That's Jesus and death. Jesus is way more powerful than death. It is not possible for death to hold him because death doesn't have the strength. Death didn't have the power to hold him. And so he gave himself over to death on the cross, but he came bursting out of the grave like a grown man beating up a pile of three-year-olds, right? Um, uh, That's a great quote from your pastor, right? Anyway, all right, so that's why... Uh, the red, that's why God raised Jesus from the dead. But what does this mean for us? So I said, we not only want to know what happened or why it happened, but we want to know, like, who cares? What does this mean for me? So let me just end quickly with uh, just a couple of ideas. Because of the resurrection, here's the first one. Because of the resurrection, we can know that we're saved. We're actually saved because Jesus rose from the dead. Um, again, in Romans 4.25, it says, um, talking about Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and look at this, raised for our justification. Justification being like the court language for us being saved. First Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, says this, And if Jesus had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So the resurrection means that somebody has paid our debt. My debt has been paid because of the resurrection. Guilt is removed and my sin is taken care of. Um, I'll tell you a story. I think I've told this story before, but I don't know. Preachers, we reuse stories. Get over it. Um, I My favorite restaurant is called Tommaso's. It's this Italian restaurant. I grew up with the owner's son, not realizing that this is like phenomenal food. Um, you know, we just used to mooch this food. I was on a basketball team with this guy, Giorgio, and his parents own this restaurant um, down on Broadway and Kearney. It's called Tommaso's. By the way, they have outdoor dining that just opened up and they built this whole thing. And it's really wonderful. Well, anyway, a bunch of years ago when I was a broke youth pastor, I, we didn't, Melissa and I just got married. We didn't have any money, right? And um, we went to Tommaso's with my brother um, and this guy that my brother knew from Romania. And we go to the restaurant and um, our friend Gabby, uh, who now lives in Michigan, she was with us. 
and we're at the restaurant and it's me, Melissa and Gabby. And we're all just kind of sitting over there off by ourselves. We're in a big group, but we're just three of us are just kind of talking. And we say, man, let's just get like the most expensive thing on the menu. You know, I was like, I know we're broke, but let's just, you know, stupid and splurge and spend money we don't really have. So we all ordered the most expensive stuff on the menu. And at the end of the meal, I went over to pay the bill. And my buddy George was like, oh, that guy paid for everybody. The, the Romanian guy that I didn't even know, right? And they paid for all of us. And part of me just felt really guilty. Oh, I wouldn't have bought the most expensive thing on the menu if I had thought this dude was paying for the bill, right? I would have just got whatever I normally get. The idea is that's our sin and the resurrection is sort of the receipt. We're saved and somebody else paid for paid our bill. Um, but how do we know? We have to go over there and ask Giorgio, did somebody pay? He's like, yeah, here's the receipt, right? That's the resurrection. Um, a lot of folks uh, from outside the faith and even some folks from inside the faith, a lot of folks think that the way Christianity works is that we're racking up a bill with our sin and we have to figure out a way to pay for it. And the way that we pay for it is by behaving. So I'm going to help this little old lady across the street. I'm going to buy this guy a meal. I'm going to give this much money to charity and I'm going to try to be nice to this person. And we think like the more that I do that stuff, the more sort of credit I'm building up so that at the end of time, I can stand before God and say, here's all the stuff that I did and now I can pay my debt. The problem is that's not the gospel. That's basically a modified version of it, but that's basically what like... Um, Religions like Islam will teach, right? That your your good deeds and your bad deeds are put on a scale. And if you don't have enough good deeds to outweigh them, then tough, you know, it, it, tough. Um, but that's not the gospel. See, the gospel is um, you're broke and you just ordered the most expensive thing on the menu and you don't have enough money to pay for it. And you need somebody to go up and you need somebody else to pay for it. And somebody did. And that was the the cross. And then the resurrection is the, the payment, uh, sorry, the receipt for that payment. The resurrection is how you know you have enough money to cover that bill or not have enough money, how you know somebody else had enough money to cover that bill for you. The second thing, the second reason that the resurrection matters so much is because of the victory over death. Guys, we're on the winning team. So in the theologians talk about the, like the, the views of the atonement, which is like, um, how how we're saved. Um, and the uh, there's different atonement theories, and basically all of them are kind of true because our salvation is so wonderful and beautiful that God needed a lot of different human analogies and metaphors to explain it to us. So he's looking at it from this angle and this angle and this angle. So the one we just talked about, the, the debt being paid, is sort of like the redemption language, the courtroom language. Um, the second one, though, is the victory language, right, that God uses, right? There's a battle. And on this side... You have the enemy and you have sin and death. And on this side, you have Jesus and you have his people. And through the death and resurrection, Jesus left his people behind, went out and completely won the battle on his own. And we get credit for it just for being on the winning team, even though we aren't the ones that won the battle. Um, it's like the 2014 World Series. So my favorite giant maybe of all time is a guy named Matt Cain. And, um, you know, the humble giant kind of like, um, anyway, he was a great dude and Big part of our 2010 World Series, big part of the 2012 World Series. And when 2014 came along, in the middle of the season, he got injured. And uh, he didn't get to play in the playoffs. And um, the Giants went on that year to win the World Series. And, uh, but he, he wasn't a part of it at all. He didn't, but did he get a ring? Sure he did. Did he get a World Series bonus that was in his contract? He sure did, right? But did he play in the World Series? No. Well, here's the thing. You're Matt Cain and in 2014, and Jesus is Madison Bumgarner out there winning the World Series on your behalf. Uh, Chuck Spurgeon, right, he put it this way. Um, 
I always call him Chuck. I don't think anybody's life ever called him Chuck, but Charles Spurgeon said the the Victorian era um, British pastor said this: "As Christ could not be held by the bonds of death, it's not possible to keep in bondage anything that belongs to Him. Anything that's us, right? We belong to Jesus, and since He has defeated death." Death has no hold on us. And so we live our, right? You live your day-to-day life headed towards death, headed towards your, sort, your, your certain death. But because you're already on the winning team, you don't have to fear it. Um, in our cool discussion on Wednesday night, Albert talked about this a little bit, where he said that death is, you know, Albert was saying death is just like sort of the doorway to our real life. And so we don't have to fear it because our champion has gone out there and already won the battle. And knowing that, knowing that about death, knowing that about our eternity completely transforms. And this is the third idea, the way that we live now. Because of the resurrection, everything uh, about the way we live is transformed. Um, again, from that chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. This is the end. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing uh, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So because of the resurrection, here's what you should do. Be steadfast and immo- immovable and abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that what you're doing is not in vain. Right. So steadfast and immovable. We live in a world that's constantly telling us to pressuring us to adapt to the world and to change what we believe. And Jesus' victory, though, gives us confidence, gives us boldness. Um, that section that we read from Acts chapter 5 is just one of a few sections where um, the apostles were arrested and pressured into changing what they were doing. And they said, no, the resurrection happened, guys. Like, uh, I'm sorry, but we're going to listen to God and we're not going to listen to you. And so because we have that confidence, right, we can continue on in the work of the Lord. Right? Our selfish hearts our selfish and fallen and sinful hearts will tell us to use our time, our money, our energy uh, on things that benefit us, right? And if your existence is only like 80, 90 years, whatever, right? That makes a lot of sense. But if your existence is eternal, it doesn't make any sense. You are an eternal being. And if you belong to Jesus, that eternity is that you're heading towards eternal life. And that transforms everything about the way we live uh, on earth now. It cha- transforms our earthly motives. Now, you are, you're freed to work on the things that will matter to you in eternity, right? There are things you do in this life that you're going to get to eternity. You're going to look back and say, I can't believe I wasted my time doing that. Um, for me, as an adult, I spent a lot of time, Melissa and I were just talking about this. I spent a lot of time when I was in junior high and high school trying to get really good at sports because for some reason I thought that was really important. And now I wish I had done something like, I don't know, math maybe. Um, And as an adult, I'm looking back and saying, wow, I wasted, I mean, not that sports was all bad, but for the most part, I wasted a lot of time trying to get really good at basketball or whatever. And now I wish I hadn't done that. Well, the same is true in eternity. We're going to get to eternity. We're going to look back at this life and say, why did I waste so much time doing whatever it was? All right, we're going to be in our new resurrected bodies lamenting the stuff that we did here. But if we know, if we think about that now, we can spend the time, you know, abounding in the work of the Lord, doing the things now that will matter to us in eternity. And the resurrection gives us the perspective to, to live sort of with that eternal perspective. It, it allows us to think about that now. And so we're freed up from serving ourselves because of the resurrection, um, because of the resurrection, we're freed up from serving ourselves to now we can serve the King who died and rose again. 
And how do we serve the king who died and rose again? What did he tell us to do? And this is how we're going to end the sermon, right? It's just these two ideas. It's, guys, it's not rocket surgery. He basically told us to do a couple of things, right? Love God and serve your neighbors. And then the Great Commission, right? Go and tell everybody about me and spread the word. And so if we're a church that takes seriously the idea of resurrection, not just on Easter, right, but the entire year, we, we're living with this real eternal perspective. We're going to do those things. We're going to love God. We're going to serve and, and love our neighbors, and we're going to uh, try to our best to live out the Great Commission. Amen? All right, I'll, I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to throw it back to Max to sing Death in His Grave, and then hopefully uh, I'll see you guys um, uh, in a few minutes, right, in about an hour or whatever. I don't know how long this whole service is going to be. But, um, let me just close in prayer. God, we thank you that you rose from the dead. We thank you that you are mighty and that, that uh, you have the power over death. We thank you that the resurrection is our receipt, that the debt for our sin has been paid. And we look forward, Lord, to the day where we are in our own resurrection bodies. We're spending eternity with you in the new heaven and earth. But we're not there yet, Lord. And so I just pray that the the power of the resurrection would be a regular part of our daily lives and a regular part of my teaching as the pastor of this church. And just for each of us in the life of this church, we want to be marked by uh, the idea that we uh, we have this resurrection power and that is deeply impacting the way that we live um, here on this earth, the way that we love you, the way that we love our neighbors, and the way that we, we take the gospel to the city and the world that we love so much. So we, we love Easter, Lord. We love this Resurrection Sunday where we can celebrate what it is that you've done for us. We, we worship you. We praise you. We thank you. You're an amazing God. And we don't deserve for you to pay the bill for our sins, and you did it anyway. Because of that, Lord, we just can't wait to spend eternity praising you and worshiping you for that fact. Amen.